everybody, it's James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Joanna Poole. Jo is an anaesthetic trainee in the UK and Jo has recently been involved with the General Medical Council's Wellbeing Report on increasing well-being in doctors. Jo published a Facebook post that went viral when she was considering leaving medicine and she outlined the reasons for this and then became a magnet for other people within the junior doctor ranks who'd had very difficult experiences, administrative nightmares, having to work on the day of their wedding, etc. And all of this fed into a wide-ranging report published recently by the GMC. And we talk about what led to Joe's blog post, the kind of responses she got to the article, and what's in the GMC report and how we might go about improving doctors' working lives. It's a really great discussion and I do hope you enjoy it. Shall we start with you telling us who you are and what you do and how you came to be uh, in the media? So essentially, I was just, I'm an anaesthetic registrar uh, and I'd started in, new in a deanery um, and halfway through sort of my first year in the deanery, um, everyone rotates hospitals um, and obviously it's a bit chaotic. You don't always have sort of exactly the induction that's necessarily appropriate to sort of practically what you're going to be doing. There's a lot of fire safety, there's a lot of blood transfusion checks, um, but actually you might not know the place that you're starting work that well. Mm. And things like IT and the swipe cards, you know, again, there's just such huge numbers, they don't always work. So I'd sort of started on a shift um, that where I'd never worked before and I was starting night shifts and it was classically, that was sort of one of the biggest emergency shifts I've ever had in terms of how quickly I needed to do things because it was sort of a big um, sort of C-section related bleed um, and a failed intubation. And I just came out of that shift exhausted and then had to pay a lot of money for my parking for various reasons, not being permanent staff, you weren't allowed permits. And I think I paid something like £25, but I just had the most awful night shift with none of the sort of human factors or system factors being ready for me and making my job harder. And I think on top of a year where I just really struggled with personal stuff, you know, family illness, my dad had fallen down a trench, had really bad post-traumatic stress after a case in intensive care the summer before, you work through all of this and yet still the system factors aren't there. And I think it was that night shift which really just made me uh, click and uh, feel really just that the system wasn't doing everything it could to help doctors out when doctors were giving a lot of their own sort of time and effort and personal uh, inner peace to um, do what's right by patients and um, wrote yeah. a blog about it, which resonated. I got sort of 400 stories in the first three days alone of similar things. And it was at that point I thought this is very systemic and I'd just like to let somebody know how many people are struggling. And it just sort of took on a, a life of its own. And then I know you, we'll get to it later, but you then communicated with Department of Health and the GMC and that's culminated in a report being published recently uh, by the GMC entitled Improving Wellbeing in, in Doctors. Yeah. Just take me back to that night shift. I mean, it sounds like everything that could go wrong uh did go wrong you know from the almost from the from the get-go really I mean starting off on nights so first so it's your first experience walking in the trust front door yeah so I had had in fairness you know they'd done the brief introduction where I'd visited the department before and sat down and gone through guidelines but things like I wasn't quite sure how to bleep people I didn't know where the blood fridge was Mm. Um, you know there's a lot to take in when you visit a new place isn't there so an hour to kind of learn where everything is for every eventuality is not 
necessarily going to help. And you were you on a split site? Is that right? I think I was listening to another of your of your podcast appearances. Yeah, that's right. So the maternity hospital where I work, and actually in most hospitals, is usually quite distant from the main anaesthetic hub. So out of hours, you're very isolated with some of the sort of highest risk patients. Um, and so we were up a hill. We're about 10 minutes away from help. So when you did have a failed intubation, uh, you, you were really a long way. And fortunately, in my situation, I'd progressed a long way down my failed intubation algorithm before I had any sort of backup um Gosh. so that was quite stressful yeah absolutely. but luckily I could still oxygenate but I was thinking front of neck and I was just thinking this is awful this is my first shift this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and I couldn't get through doors because things like the swipe card access wasn't quite ready yet and presumably um, nobody really knew exactly who you were on a personal level because no, they hadn't met no, you before exactly I don't know them they don't know me um and the team was very stressed they wanted to crack on so I had the human pressures factor of you know, she's bleeding, come on, let's do this. Hmm. Uh, and I'm there like, well, we can't, <laughs> we don't have safe. an airway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Obviously, you, you got through that first shift and then you were saying that you, the hospital hadn't provided any car parking for you, so you had to park in the town centre, is that right? Yeah, that's right, because I think when you rotate so much, there's often waiting lists, so permanent staff tend to get parking permits um, higher than uh, people that rotate through. So this affects a lot of trainees. And, you know, my commute is 50 miles. There is no sensible alternative train transport. My only option is to drive. Mm. Um, and then I think it costs £25 for a night's parking. Wow. So you do all of that and you get through your shift and you've, you know, you use every last inch of your training to get through it. And then you have to go out and pay that much money. And you do just feel completely not valued. You know, you've given your sort of health and sanity to this job. Um, and they can't provide simple things. You know, when all the staff car parks are lying empty overnight, I think that's what, you know, really rubbed me raw. Yeah, it sounds like it. And then you, you finished your nights, went home and, and wrote the uh, wrote the now famous blog post. Yeah, yeah, about wanting to quit, which I totally, completely felt that way at the time. You know, I'd written a resignation draft letter. I wanted to give up my number and go and do something else. I just thought giving another sort of 30, 40 years to this organisation you know, it's never going to value me. What's the point in hanging around? I'll find a way to make a difference another way. And how had things been up to becoming a registrar in your, your F1 and F2 uh, and core training years? Um, I'd really enjoyed them. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of moving. I think in 10 years, I'd had 10 addresses, simply just trying to stay close to the hospital so you're not having to commute um, wow. on night shifts. 10 addresses. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness it's really me. frustrating filling in DBS uh, criminal record checks. So, but I really enjoyed it. You worked hard. I think in my F1 year, you know, the hours contract thing still hadn't really been quite worked out. So you'd still do sort of 90 hours, but I'd enjoyed it. You work hard, but you felt valued. Everyone knew who you were. You know, if you were quite down on a shift, someone would notice and give you a cup of tea. Whereas I, I think that's what changed, you know, anaesthetics in particular. You'll often do 12 week placements. Mm. So you might not even meet the same boss twice. Mm. So they can't tell if you're off or if you're just sort of, a grumpy person yeah um you know so I think that's where the difference is you just don't know the people around you very well uh when you're rotating very quickly whereas I'd absolutely loved F1 and F2 I'd probably work more hours um but felt people knew who I was <laughs> more almost more of a team structure or at least the Definitely same places day in day out structure. Yeah. yeah people yeah. would notice if you were slightly tearful for example whereas that kept happening that people weren't picking up that I was you know about to break into tears and I think 
we can't if you sort of spread that over a few weeks people just end up so demoralized mm, yeah absolutely and in terms of um, med school is is anesthetics something you always wanted to do from from early on oh yeah definitely so um I actually went to med school to do genetics and then got sidetracked really loved physiology um, mm. and then we had a two-week clinical placement in anesthetics. I think someone showed me that one of the muscle relaxants, um, succimethonium, was actually two acetylcholine molecules joined together. And the receptor has two binding places for acetylcholine. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this was so magical. Um, wow. I didn't and, know that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there you go. So it's interesting. And I think from that point in, I was hooked because they, they all seemed so clever, so lovely, really keen to teach. And I always found myself drifting down the sort of head end when I was on surgical placement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the end that most other people drift away from during yeah, exactly. an arrest situation, for example. Okay, so you, you were set on aesthetics. You did F1, F2, um, worked very hard, but had a reasonably good team structure. So yeah. so enjoyed it. Obviously had the general ups and downs of, of uh, working with patients that we all have, you know, traumatic, yeah, difficult absolutely. experiences. Yeah, it's peaks and troughs, isn't it? But overall, great. And did you say something had happened to you just before you had, should we call it the night from hell? Um, You were saying that some family stuff and then you'd lost your horse and some other issues. Yeah, there were a few things. So I'd started on intensive care and I was a relatively young registrar. So I think, you know, initially I remember my first day getting confused for a medical student uh, as my first reg day. So and I was, you know, suddenly in charge overnight of a major trauma centre. You know, but you, you learn and it was it was really good fun and it was just an exponential learning curve. We all um kind of thrive on a bit mm. of chaos don't we yeah indeed. and then a limited then, amount not not too much but you know. yeah you want a safe a safe boundary exactly. so there had been one case which was just a motorbike um accident you know I, i've seen hundreds of those they don't usually particularly bother me but there was something about this case because the the consultant had come out of the room with the family just crying and i've never seen you know a very experienced mm. um consultant sort of breakdown like that mm. um and, you know, we had to sort of ensure she got home safely and things. And then I just remember he was fitting loads and it was one of those really complicated situations where you were kind of semi-anesthetizing just to stop the fitting, but trying not to, you know, we'd withdrawn care, but obviously you still can't do anything that is going to provoke death per se. Sure. So it was a yeah. really careful balance. And it, it just so happened they were the same drugs that um, we used to euthanize my horse a few months later. And then I went straight on to night shifts and I just got really severe flashbacks you know, looking back, it was post-traumatic stress. I was completely anxious, completely startle response, um, tachycardic. But, you know, no one picked up at work. And even the days I was actually having invasive imagery of, you know, seeing people dying in front of me, you know, I still had great feedback from all the people around me. So I think it's doctors are very good at masking stuff like that. But I think that had been a really rubbish four months for me Mm. so I think and I hadn't taken a day off which in retrospect was completely not the appropriate thing to do Mm. but I think that's why I just resented like this poor sort of system thing so much I just felt you know the system has no idea what people are sort of sacrificing to come in every day and kind of do their best and yet you continue to slam them with these poor you know completely predictable system errors basically because presumably the Obviously, we won't say which trust, but the trust had known that you were starting for quite a few months beforehand, right? Yeah. So they could have got a nice ID badge that worked properly. They could have, yeah. okay, maybe not fixing the car parking, but at least warned you about it and said, look, you know. Yeah, or said, you know, um, you know, here are a couple of car parks that are slightly right. cheaper overnight. We'll sort things out. I think because people do move so often, nobody really takes responsibility for sort of saying, you know, welcome. 
you know, why don't you try parking here? This is where you can get lunch. Just that holistic thing. It is just like you are just a number and you slot in and you work it all out yourself. But actually, if you're doing that six or seven times a year mm. and then you do have a bad time at home, you just feel very disjointed, I think, from reality and social structures. And do you think that's, I'm assuming that people are going to admin in the NHS I mean I know lots of them and most of them are really really nice people on a personal they level they are lovely yeah. they're just overwhelmed it's like everything and I think the deaneries that year had had a big budget cut and right. they'd lost something like two-thirds of their admin staff so there's some so, of the experienced people who knew what to, to exactly. do and to say yeah yeah and you know they're overworked and everything you know nobody's given the optimum resources are they but you know at the end of it there are victims so yeah, somebody absolutely. could try and sort of sort out some of it I think you know we've got computers you know I'm sure they could just do automated <laughs> something <laughs> <laughs> AI for new doctors yeah something like that so in terms of your blog post then it it obviously resonated with lots and lots of people lots mm. of different grades of doctors um yeah I was shocked can you it talk a little amazing. bit about that and and how that sort of uh, blew up over the, the the days and weeks following your post yeah, definitely. So I, I think I'd originally um, sort of shared it on Twitter. I think this was a, a blog I'd set up in med school. I think two people had read it in 10 years. And then <laughs> all of a sudden I was getting you know, a few comments, um, you know, mostly sort of people on Twitter that I follow. But then it was being shared sort of on Facebook forums. And it started sort of Twitter and Facebook messages, the occasional email and the first few just felt like, oh, these are people that have just had a really crap time. They've been referred to the GMC or whatever. You know, there's a bit of an axe to grind. Mm. But actually, they were coming so thick and fast. And, it, you know, some of them were just atrocious. There was a lot of wedding and funerals being turned down. Um, or, you know, despite a year or six months notice, people still were getting rotated on their own weddings. There was a girl who had to go to clinic with her full wedding hair and makeup because she wasn't allowed the morning of her wedding off. Um, no, there's someone that had to try their wedding dress on in the ward office because they just had no zero days where they had time to go and get it sorted. Um, and I'm and, assuming these people had given, let's be try and be fair, yeah. they had given proper notice and it Absolutely. wasn't like a, a shotgun yeah. wedding next week, I'm getting married. No, it was, yeah. it's literally because you almost can't give more than six weeks notice because the voters aren't even written that far in advance. Yeah. And then when you do... Um, I, I just don't know why people would vote to someone on their wedding day. I don't know why anyone would do that. You have to be a bit of a monster. That's the bit or I don't just not realising. People um, are lovely. Yeah. yeah not putting two and two it's, together. It's just ridiculous. And it's, that is the, by far the most common complaint. So I had over 350 examples of that. Um, and I know that to be true from you know my friends that have had similar experiences at work. Um, and then just other unpleasant things, you know, crashing on the way to work, still expected to come in. Someone's partner committed suicide one afternoon before their A&E shift and their boss said um you know take one for the team we're, we're going to struggle to replace you but wow. that's yeah. just unbelievable yeah. <laughs> it is and I don't recognize you know I don't recognize that side of it I've never had truly nasty experiences it's mostly sort of a really casual neglect that's just no one sort of taking responsibility for sorting it out as opposed to you know maliciousness but I think, again, there were just so many examples of bullying or nasty stuff. I think that's what provoked me. And I also thought some of these doctors are suicidal and mm. some of them are about to quit or have quit. You know, if you want to address morale and retention and recruitment, should we start with addressing why there are these pockets of really inhuman behaviour? Because I, I feel like a lot of these examples are quite easy to resolve or avoid, you know. 
people having their weddings off shouldn't be massively difficult for departments to cope with. It happens once or twice in a career. I mean, it's certainly uh, easier, I would think, to try to retain doctors who are already fully trained and yeah. then to try and um what is Draft it produced yeah produced yeah, boris johnson's exactly. twenty thousand gps next year or whatever he said absolutely so what i mean let's talk about the how the gmc got involved and then we'll come on to to some of the the practical solutions and things that you've you've talked about on previous mm. podcasts that you think might be able to help mm. how did the gmc well, get involved well initially when i started getting the stories i thought i don't know who's really responsible for all of us this isn't one hospital one trust or one deanery this is national some people are in scotland mm. um who's kind of overall responsible the only <clears throat> person i really could think of that i knew did everyone is the gmc um so i kind of emailed them and the press got hold of it the guardian got hold of it and were really helpful and kind of <laughs> almost threw the gauntlet down um, in a press article which is mm. the way to get any political attention isn't it unfortunately that it is the reality um, but they were really kind about it and they sort of handled it in a really uh, sort of civilized and not too sort of fangs out uh, blood hungry manner which I was good because I, I didn't want to cause like a big argument I just wanted to let the appropriate people know so that we could do something yeah you weren't doing it for, for personal PR no I wasn't I mean... trying to sort of get anyone in trouble but I just thought lots of people are suffering why don't we mm. sort it out um so sort of email back and forth the GMC were already doing a well-being review so I just um spoke to sort of the leads for that um and a really lovely strategic lead was um somebody called Alexander Blome and she's just lovely I phoned her she really she'd been out visiting junior doctors mm. uh, re- retention and recruitment's a big sort of um topic for workforce management um, so they were really keen to speak to sort of the front line and junior doctors about what had gone on. I think mm. everyone was aware. Nobody liked the GMC after the Baragaba incident and sure. after all the junior doctor strikes. Um, so they were quite keen to sort of reach out and make a difference. Um, That's good to hear. Yeah. And my college, the anaesthetic college, were great. And then the head of the um, Royal College of Pathologists took me to work with her for a day. Really? And I think, yeah, she did. She was oh, really nice. Lovely. That's Jo Martin. Um, mm. And she... And she sort of shared in her WhatsApp group, you know, all these stories. And that's the sort of, what's it, the Academy of Royal Colleges. Mm, Um, So I think by then everyone had sort of heard about it. So there was enough shared and mutual interest that um, people felt like challenging this to get this done, which is why I think it went so far. It was just a couple of the right people talking to more of the right people. And eventually people realised we all had the same end goal, I think, which is more doctors in the NHS. And what are the some of the things that have, have come out of the report? I'll put a link to the full report mm. and also your, your blog post and the Guardian article as well mm-hmm. uh, in the show notes. But what would you say are the some of the more, more positive elements that have come out other than just a simple recognition that this is a, a very severe a and widespread issue? Mm. So I guess there are personal things and then the sort of system-wide things. Mm. So on a personal level, it's I've completely decided not to quit. Um, which is great news and, yeah. which is amazing and also how lucky we are to work with the colleagues that we have we actually work with sort of the best examples of humanity and it's worthwhile remembering that and um, through linking up with all these various groups I now understand why sometimes people don't see the other side or understand what's happening we're very good at complaining at home we don't necessarily raise it through the right levels mm. um, and it's been really helpful I think for like my own friends and the own, my own colleagues seeing that a completely normal person can have a bad day and then have something done about it and then mm. actually the colleges will take it seriously and the GMC does take it seriously um, so that's boosted morale massively um, and then of course a lot of the really interesting things in the report are 
we were really surprised to see how basic they are in terms of they are literally what we have been asking for, you know, a safe place to rest because a lot of the messes and the on-call rooms have been taken away. Yeah. Somebody to address fatigue shift patterns in the commutes we do, hot food available on night. You know, none of this is sort of asking for a, you know, a limousine and sort of a red carpet to be rolled out, but just some good basic caring things that mean you don't mind going to work when you could do another job <laughs> instead. So, um I think it's been really helpful for practical examples to be highlighted in the report yeah, and just the fact they're close to our hearts. And there are quite a few, aren't there? There's sort of yeah. 40 or 50 recommendations um, yeah. that the GMC puts forward. And do you think they these are, do you think these are going to, to happen, Joe, just to get slightly pessimistic again? Is this is the funding mm. for this kind of stuff? Can they lean on the deaneries to make these happen? Do you think I it would be embarrassing for think, them not to happen? Yeah, I think now it's out in a, in a GMC report and now it's in writing. Um, I think there's a lot more sort of political pressure for them to happen. Mm. I think the key to making them happen is there have to be financial implications for not meeting these targets. Right. So people are talking about, um, so CQC actually have been talking about making a well-being sequin so that there are financial penalties for not making the doctors happy. Because we all know that morale and recruitment and vacancies are linked to patient safety. Sure. So actually looking after your staff is a proxy measure of improving other things. Um, and then someone was also talking about making a sort of trip advisor for trusts, um, really? where, where how trainee, you know, trainees can rank them as opposed to how friendly they are. Um, and it doesn't necessarily affect training so much because you kind of get put in a hospital. I think that's part of the problem. They they know there's sort of a steady influx of trainees as opposed to, you know, back in the old days, people who would apply for SHO jobs, you know, separately due mm. to where a place was or how friendly the department was. But I think having that background information would help people pick rotations. Mm. And also the deaneries could say, look, why is this being ranked so poorly and go in and do something about it? Because mm. I think the information is out there. I just don't think it's always collated in one place. Like all the trainees will know if a department is particularly bad for giving leave or whatever. Mm. Um, and actually that department probably just needs a bit of help, you know, whether it's more funding, more management, a different rotor template. Um, it would be nice to have a, a way of centralizing these things mm. because rot rotating just means people put up with it for three months because they know they're out of there again. Right, um, and then it's the next person who yeah, nothing really changes. Exactly. Yeah. So there needs to be a sort of continuity of um, sort of assessment for how good these places are for trainees, I think. Because I think patients ultimately benefit. And for people who are listening who are having a bad time or thinking about quitting, not, mm. not feeling necessarily supported, you mentioned mm. a couple of things. Um, I've heard you talk about on other podcasts, the, mm. the WARD scheme, W-A-R-D scheme. Yeah. Um, can you mention a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So they're amazing. So WARD stands for Well and Resilient Doctors. They have a website, which you can just Google. It's um, I think it's ward.org.uk. Um, but they are a charity set up by anaesthetists um, in, in the Bristol Deanery because one of their friends committed suicide. And the idea is these are, um, it's by trainees for trainees. So it's registrars that have recently been junior, junior doctors. They understand what it's like. They're more approachable maybe than consultants. Mm -hmm. They wear red lanyards so you can find them. They should be available in every hospital eventually. And it doesn't matter what the problem is. If you're going through a divorce and you have no finances left on the house, you just go to them and they'll network with the right people. If you're going through a mental health issue, they have access to psychiatrists. And for example, in our area, they've actually um, worked with liaison psych to get doctors seen at work 
if they're that close to a crisis. Really? Um, really Yeah. Yeah. And so financial help, emotional, it doesn't matter what it is. You just go to one of these people and they will act as a middleman between you and whoever it is you need to see. Um, And they're all really nice and doing this in their spare time. And it's a registered charity now. And I think it's being rolled out nationally um, as a model for sort of um, well-being. So they are really great. And you should start to see them everywhere now. That's good news. And any other, anything else you'd recommend for people who are really struggling, uh, maybe not on the mental health side, because clearly, you know, GP is going to be important Mm. there. But perhaps people who are thinking of, of leaving, I mean, there are other areas, other people you can reach out to, aren't there? Definitely. I think what surprised me with my blog post was how many people offered um, to come and have me for a day at work. Mm. So, you know, when you're doing work experience, you know, way back at 17, turns out you can do work experience age 30. Like really? just if someone's doing something interesting um, and you'd like to see that particular clinic looking at that strange gene or if you'd like to go and see what a diving uh, medicine chamber looks like and learn more about that. You can. There are people doing space medicine, working with human centrifuges. Everyone, if you just approach them, uh, seems to be really friendly. And I think it's more inspiring uh, to see these people doing things you're interested in. And there's actually a lot of fellowship opportunities. You can take a year out and do three or six months here and there. And um, I think that really invigorates you and reminds you why you're doing this. It's not just about service provision for the NHS to help the A&E waiting times. You know, there's a sort of personal component that we all chose medicine for, Mm. which is to sort of explore, isn't it? And actually, I think that gets lost a bit sometimes. Um, So taking a year out or just asking for a week here and there, um, the deaneries are being much more flexible now about time out of programme. That's really good to hear. And of course, there's always research as well. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You've talked about that in other media as well. Yeah. um, As a way of perhaps recharging a little bit, having a completely different focus for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Well, anything else you want to finish with, Joe? Uh, are you still actively involved in this campaign? Is your work done now with this fabulous report being produced? How do you see things uh, um, in the future for you? I feel that so I'm going to go off and do some research. I think in terms of well-being, it was never my um, passion. It was a very sort of organic evolution that just happened. But now I've made contact with all those various people. Um, the GMC, for example, are still looking at ways of actually implementing these new models now. So it's, they've recognised the problem. How are they going to change it? So they're doing a lot of work now on how to move this forward into sort of practical solutions. Um, so they said they'd keep me in mind for that um, and work with me again on stuff like that. I think it's quite helpful for them to have people that are on the coalface that are interested in this stuff because it's a give and take system, isn't it? They still have to staff hospitals and they can't give us all, you know, 20 weeks off a year. Um, sure. But I think... Um, there's always been an us and them mentality, I think. And I think it would be helpful for that to change. Um, so I think I'm going to try and do some work with them on that. Um, and then so my local trust, on, I really want to sort out car parking. I think this is my main <laughs> my main campaign now. <laughs> Joanna NCP pool. That's going to be Yeah, you. literally. Okay. Well, hopefully. Well, good luck with that. Uh, car Thank parking you. where yeah, I work is, uh, yeah, it is a challenge. <laughs> and um, yeah, the prices keep going up and up and up yeah. as well. So. But it's really good to talk to you. And um, although it's a, initially a negative subject, I think you should be, you know, really pleased with the amount that you've managed to accomplish with the GMC yeah. and the deanery and hospitals. It's and, been really uh, educational. I've really enjoyed it, actually. Overall, I would do it again. But yeah, it wasn't nice at the time. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, hopefully some really good things can come out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks very much for uh, for joining us, Joe. No, it was great. Thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm.